Hello everyone and welcome to Radically Normal. I'm Andre and I'm here with Michael and on today's episode titled Light on a Mountain, we'll be discussing the transfiguration, Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection, as well as a discussion on temptations to sin. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. So I'm not a big rom-com fan in general, but I just love all Christmas movies. So a cheesy Christmas movie is right up my alley. And so I watch all those cheesy Netflix films that nobody else probably watches, but I love them. And the other day I watched one and a roommate said, come on, man, you got to wait till at least after Thanksgiving. So what's the verdict here? Can't I watch and put up Christmas lights before Thanksgiving? Christmas lights for sure not. That's that's kind of embarrassing. Come on. But I mean, movies questionable after thanksgiving i think is better like you know you just have like less than a week to wait uh before you can just like you know safely say it's time to watch christmas movies you know maybe like the night after thanksgiving lunch or dinner or whatever you have just have that you know fat (laughs) turkey nap then you wake up and watch a good christmas movie i think that's you know the perfect place to start but i mean those like christmas movies especially the hallmark ones they're so cheesy I don't know if you've seen that meme where, like, every Hallmark movie, the cover is, like, a dude wearing a green shirt and a girl wearing a red shirt, <laughs> and they're just, like, posing together on the front cover. <laughs> no, I haven't seen the meme, actually, but I, I'm not, I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of memes in general, I guess you could say, but I don't know. So, what's the deadline, then? Just after th- you eat a Thanksgiving meal, or is it December 1st, or when can I say with certainty that it's Christmas time? Because I think Christmas time can be whenever you want. I love those cheesy movies. I, I don't watch Hallmark, I, but on I, Netflix, I think they're pretty... I don't know. I enjoy it just because of the Christmas spirit. I, I think after you wake up from your turkey nap, that's that's when it's appropriate. So here's the question, though. I don't nap. So if I don't have a turkey nap, can I start before? Just start the next day. Oh, gosh. All right. Well, I don't know. This is changing my mind. How do you not? How do you not? How do you not sleep after having Thanksgiving meal? Come on. I don't know. I just never nap, you know, not really my thing. Uh. However, I will say. Uh, I don't know. This discussion didn't really change my mind. Gonna keep watching Christmas movies and uh, definitely gonna get to my favorite again this season, which is Christmas Vacation, the Lampoon's one, which I just think is a hilarious movie. Definitely my favorite. And I will say another controversial opinion going back to my comments on The Office and Whataburger, but I do think Elf is slightly overrated and Christmas Vacation is better than it. I think Christmas movies are, are definitely... They're definitely pretty good. Some of them are really cheesy, but some of them are really funny, which, I mean, which helps. What's your favorite? And, you know, there's favorite Christmas movie. Um, I don't know. I actually, I actually don't think Elf is too bad, but, you know, the Home Alone movies, some of oh, those, those are, are, like, considered Christmas those are, movies, Oh, right? yeah, those are good. Yeah. No, no, no. I think Elf is good. I'm just saying I think Christmas Vacation is better. Yeah, I think the Home Alone movies... Um, those are definitely my favorite. Solid, solid. And we yeah. got a little bit of Christmas in because the Die Hard, the Die Hard film was the title of our Mark 7 and 8 uh, episode. We had Die Hard to Self, so we got a little bit of that in. And maybe you'll catch me squeezing Christmas Vacation into one of our titles as well. So we'll see about that. But today we have an amazing chapter starting off the second half of Mark chap- uh, the Gospel of Mark. So should we hop in? Yeah, for sure, man. So uh, last week where we left off... Um, was Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection. And, you know, we saw, you know, Peter's um, uh, reaction to that. Um, And then now we see, starting off with chapter 9, with Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here 
who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And, you know, we get to jump initially, like, straight into the transfiguration, and we get to see um, Jesus take some of his disciples up on a mountain, and we get to see, and they um, get to witness um, a revelation of, um, like, Jesus' power, um, you know, just, like, transform right before their eyes and, you know, see that, you know, who he truly truly is. And it's a really great depiction and a really um, exciting place to start our episode today. Yeah, for sure. I think one thing that's really interesting is Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have that same quote right before the transfiguration. So when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here, that whole quote is right before the transfiguration in all three gospels. And some people will say, well, Jesus didn't come back. We didn't see the kingdom of God come in its power when they were still alive. So this is like a false claim or doesn't mean what you think it means. But it's not about his return, obviously. It's about his resurrection. And that fits in with the context of the previous, uh, not of the previous verse, but of the previous section, because in 831, he had said that uh, the Son of Man is going to be rejected and killed, and then he's going to rise from the dead. So this is looking ahead to the resurrection, which fits in with the theme of the transfiguration, because the transfiguration does two things. One, I think first and most important, as you said, it's a revelation of Jesus's power. But second, it's also a prediction or a looking ahead to Jesus's resurrection, which I think is also important. Yeah, <clears throat> for sure, man. I think it's like also interesting. There's like actually a few interesting things about this um, potentially to point out. One is like, you know, who he takes with him. Um, he doesn't take all the disciples with him. It's just Peter, James, and John, um, which, you know, I, I think is interesting that not all of them got to witness this. It was just a select few. I was thinking it's like super interesting, like, what specifically they saw, you know, it says like they had seen like him transform, like his like clothing was like as white as like anything that you could like ever even see. Um, like my like perceptions, like they're just like blinded by like the, the power, like radiating from Jesus. I think that's also um, super interesting. And then also the fact that, you know, they go on um, up a mountain, which is like a common theme that we've seen, discussed and talked about plenty of times. Um, throughout, you know, our episodes in the podcast. Um, and I think that, you know, it's interesting to like think about those three things. Um, definitely things that stuck out the most to me and, and that I spent some time thinking about as I uh, prepared and, and, and thought about this section of, of the chapter. Dang, that goes right with what I was thinking because I had also spent a lot of time thinking about the mountain because this is exactly where, so we talked about in, I think it was chapter three, where he called the, the 12 from, he was on a mountain, but if you think about the two characters that show up in this story, Elijah and Moses, well, where did God reveal himself to those two? He revealed himself on a mountain, Mount Sinai uh, with Moses and, uh, well, the same mountain with Elijah, but in the in the King's story, it's, it's called Mount Horeb, but same mountain. So he revealed himself to those two on a mountain. But what's interesting is Tim Keller was talking about how when Moses came off the mountain and the Israelites could see in his face that the God, God's glory would like shined off of it, he reflected the glory of God. But Jesus doesn't reflect God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. And so in Hebrews, it says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And so Jesus is the glory of God in person right here. And I thought that was just a magnificent observation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I honestly... um. I think that's really cool that you know Moses and Elijah were, were described here and um especially like the disciples like saw like all three of them so like we know that like they were like actually like witnessing this like happening like right before their eyes and they were just like 
like they had like this like amazement um and you know after um you know we see that you know like like you said you know god it his you know power and like is not just like reflecting off of jesus but it's like radiating like through him and like we like specifically see god say like this is his beloved son um and he said and he tells um you know he says listen to him i think that's like super cool and kind of like points to what you were saying but then like also like the disciples like witnessing this like happening right before them and like just like seeing like jesus's like power and like he's just like transformed like like right like before their eyes and you know they like they hear the like the voice of the lord saying like listen to him and like we know like all of the I would say like maybe like troubles or like the, the times that they've like just questioned um, or misunderstood or you lacked understanding of like the parables or like the miracles that they'd seen or just like things going on along in, in Jesus' ministry. And like, you know, here they're coming towards more towards like the back end of his ministry and like they're just hearing like, like this like powerful voice and like witnessing this great power and it just, you know, it says like listen to him, like, you know listen, figure it out, like, this is the truth. And, like, now they're just, like, seeing this power right before them. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And a lot of people talk about how the this is my beloved son echoes back to this is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, which I think is very interesting because just as we talked about in the IGTV with the crucifixion, the resurrection just just last week or the week before, Jesus is the suffering servant and he's God's chosen servant in Isaiah 42. And also just as we talked about on the IGTV episode where we talked about Jesus's ministry. It's interesting how this exalts him above Elijah and Moses' status because who does God say to listen to? Not Moses, not Elijah. And the words that they had were super important, but Jesus's words are, are more important. And then it's actually interesting though, that you said like all the doubts they had and you know, all the confusion kind of this clarifies that they see the son of God and his glory. But it's interesting though, that they come down the mountain and then they, he says, don't tell anyone. And then verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what his, his rising from the dead comment might mean. So they, they get to see him gloriously shown in the transfiguration. But then he talks about rising from the dead, and then they're just confused again. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of crazy. I don't even, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting, like, you know, to think there's, like, what to make of that. Um, like, how, I don't know, how they're just, like, like still confused, you know, but you know, as like the common theme that we've said, like plenty of times, like this kind of just like shines a light on the brokenness of man and like how we all question and like have doubts, like in the same way. Um, but I mean, I, I do think it's like super interesting that you point that out that like, as soon as they hear about that, Jesus is going to die again, they're, they're kind of questioning, I, I guess like maybe they're thinking like, how could, you know, this like Messiah, how could he die? Like I'm seeing this like great power. How is it even possible that, that he might die? I, like I think maybe that's their questioning, and, and they're kind of just like questioning like what God's way ultimately is, and they think that potentially like they're just like envisioning in their head this like better way that like they think is 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 the best way to like accomplish, um, you know, spreading the news of 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 their Savior of their side of, of Jesus that you know they're seeing this great power and and you know clearly they they love him respect him like all those things and and they just I guess like they don't they don't agree with with um, plan that God has set in place. Yeah. And you even see in the transfiguration, they're, they're confused. Cause in verse five, Peter says, Rabbi, is it good? It's, 
it's good that we're here. Can we build, like, let us make three tents for you, Moses, and Elijah. But what's interesting is the Greek word for tent there is tabernacle. Like if you translate the Old Testament into the Greek, the word for tent there is let us make three tabernacles. So Peter wants to build a tabernacle for all three of them so that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, the inner three that you were talking about, so that they would be protected from God's presence. But who's the new tabernacle? Who's the new temple? It's Jesus. That's why Jesus said the temple will be destroyed in three days, or the temple is going to be destroyed and I'll raise it up in three days. And John comments in John 2 that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. So Peter wants a tabernacle for protection, but he doesn't realize that Jesus is the tabernacle of life. And so even in the transfiguration in this glorious moment, we do see their misunderstanding once again. Yeah, man, that's that's a really interesting point. And I mean, I think at least from like my perspective, the last interesting thing to, to point out before we move on to the next section is that in verse 13 where it says, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. You know, here, um, as I, you know, I read, um, as I was preparing and stuff, Elijah here is, is John the Baptist. Um, and, you know, he's responding to, to some of the, of, um, Peter, James and, and John's, um, doubt specifically Peter addressing this point here. But I mean, if you have nothing else about this first section about the transfiguration, we can, we can move into Jesus healing the young boy with the unclean spirit, um, which is another great story um of of jesus you know being being begged to come in and help someone's someone's kid and you know cleanse someone of, of a of a spirit who's taking over their body and you know making you know bad and controllable things happen here um so you, you want to move on to this next section yeah i think the first thing that's interesting in the next section is the the scribes arguing and then there's the the, the person in the crowd but it's interesting that the, he goes i asked your disciples to cast the spirit out and they weren't able. And then Jesus seems a little like, ah, oh gosh. And, uh, I don't know. I just think that's really interesting because you wonder if the guy was like associating the disciples with Jesus in the sense that like, dang, the disciples can't do it. Maybe Jesus can't do it. Or dang, the disciples just really aren't like Jesus at all. Like, I wonder if the man was grouping them together or seeing them completely separately. My, my thinking of, of why Jesus is potentially frustrating here could potentially be wrong, but towards the end, um, it says that the disciples asked him privately, why can we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So like my thinking was like the disciples like didn't even pray over this um, person who, who had a, um, had an unclean spirit. So basically like they didn't call upon like Jesus's name to like heal this boy. They kind of just like try to take it upon themselves kind of thing. Um, and I thought that was like Jesus's like main frustration. Like they don't even like they don't get it. Like they don't get like the power of like like praying over the over this um, you know boy with a, with with a demon inside of him, and more so than than just like the man uh, his himself, um, you know, not attributing disciples to Jesus per se, but that could be wrong. Yeah, that's definitely true. It also kind of reminds me of what we talked about with Russell Moore because if it's I'm I'm just speculating on whether or not the man associated them with Jesus or not. But Russell Russell Moore in our interview with him, he talked about how. It was, it's not so much that we have a judgment seat or that we have controversial beliefs, but that we don't hold to them strong enough. And so it's kind of like if 
he was basically saying, if you're witnessing to the surrounding culture, it's not so much that the culture is going to see you and Jesus together and think that the beliefs are awful or something or immoral. It's that the culture is going to know in their conscience who Jesus is and what the truth is, even if they don't adhere to it. And then they're going to see you and see you not having the integrity of upholding that. And so I do wonder if he's thinking about the witness of his disciples, but he's on the scene, so no worries. And yeah, I do think that he is... uh, either frustrated or not impatient in like a sinful way, obviously, but at least just thinking about how like, like we know that Jesus prayed. Luke records it like nine times maybe or something. And in Mark one, we saw that he, he, we, you know, got up early and went on the mountain to pray. And so we know that Jesus spent time with the father and Jesus is the God man. And so how much more do we? And so I definitely think that this is a lesson to us on hey, we need to pray too. And I think that this story is interesting because it gives us a good outlet for what our prayer can be. What's the father, what does the father cry out? I believe, help my unbelief. Like we're in this tension of, I believe you, Jesus, but there's parts of me that doesn't, that don't believe. And that's where my sin takes over. And so help my unbelief. So we need to know the importance of prayer, but this, this story also gives us a good, uh, a good prayer model. Yeah, for sure. I think that's, that's really good. That was something I wanted to, you know, focus on as well. That when Jesus says, like, you know, you know, this is, you know, all things are possible for one who believes. And like the man, I think, like in saying this, like in crying out, um, "I believe, help my unbelief." I think he's like saying that, like, like, you know, deep down, he wants to believe. Like, like that's just like, like really like his raw emotions that he wants to really believe. But like, there's just like a part of him that's like still questioning and, and still like grappling with this. And he's like, literally just like, you know, falling before Jesus and asking like, please help me to believe, please help me to, you know, um, believe fully in this. And like, what I want most is, is to believe and to have my, my son be healed. And I think that's like such like a, a raw, very like emotional moment that this like man has like right before Jesus, which is like super crazy. And, and like very um, like, like, as you said, telling of like a specific model we can use when we pray. Yeah, I think it, it might be in Romans 7. It's wherever Paul says like he 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 doesn't do what he wants to do and he does what he doesn't want to do, saying like he's basically saying I don't want to sin but I do and I want to follow Jesus in every circumstance, but sometimes I fail that. In the same way like kind of like we want to trust Jesus everywhere and we do believe, but there's areas in our heart that don't believe. And so this is our cry too, every day. I believe, help my unbelief. And so I think that that's just an awesome model. And so it's interesting though, that he says nothing, it can only be driven out by prayer, but we know that there's different types of prayer. And so I think that he, I think that he's really going, it goes right back to what this man is showing. He's just demonstrating like raw faith, like you're talking about. And that's the kind of faith that the father desires from us is that we would just pray with raw faith, not just praying to pray, but praying in desperate need for God to show up. And without that, we're helpless. And so is this father. If, if Jesus doesn't show up, he has no hope. Yeah, for sure. And then we move into Jesus again, uh, telling of his death and resurrection. And this time, I think it's interesting to point out that um, they didn't understand and, you know, this time they, they're too afraid to even ask. I think that's, like, really interesting. <clears throat> I think that's really interesting. Um, that's, like, stated here. Um, potentially, like, they're afraid of the whole situation where, where you know, Jesus says that, you know, he's going to suffer, he's going to be killed, um, etc. And, you know, the disciples don't even ask this time. They're too afraid to ask. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we're clearly in the second half of Mark now. So, like, they're traveling. The emphasis here is that they're on the way to the cross. So, Jesus 
is speaking of what's going to happen and they, the disciples will understand later. That's what the gospels tell us. Like, you know, that he rises from the dead and then they're like, the disciples remember what happened, what Jesus said about him rising from the dead. Well, of course, of course they do then. They just don't understand now. And so it's also interesting though, like now that they're on the way to the cross after this chapter, I'm pretty sure we have no more times in Mark where there's a command of silence because now the folk, the whole, the full focus is that they're going to the cross. Whereas before the focus was just on the ministry. And so that's, that's really interesting about how Mark structures that as well. Yeah, man, for sure. And, and like one interesting thing that um, I was reading about was how like in terms of the timeline of Jesus' ministry, this is like definitely like the very like back end, like probably like year three out of like three and a half years to where like how you said like, you know, they're on their way to the cross. Like, like, yeah, like for sure. Like it's, it's done in like the back end and Jesus is like revealing these like last things to them, you know, before it kind of, it all goes down and, you know, here they're still questioning, but you know, like you, as you said, Later on, it's going to all make sense to them. And then we see um, in the next section, uh, Jesus kind of, you know, teaches the disciples an important lesson, which, uh, you know, we should definitely spend a few minutes on before, before we move on from here. But, um, you know, the gist of it is in verse 35, um, Jesus explains that if anyone would be the first, he must be the last of all and a servant of all. And this really highlights how Jesus came, you know, to be, um, the suffering servant um, to serve first and former, first and foremost, um, you know, not not to be um, like not to be uh, you know a dictator ruler, but to be a suffering servant who you know taught and and um, went throughout his ministry with love and compassion um, for everyone, and he's kind of describing and explaining this importance to the disciples as they you know, are grappling about, you know, who amongst them is the greatest. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say, because it kind of reminds me of practice what you preach, because right in the next chapter in 1045 is like one of the most famous verses or quotes that Jesus has, which is that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And so Jesus is doing, Jesus does exactly what he tells them to do. But I kind of think this, this little story is funny because you think of like, a parent or like a, even if it was like a pastor or something, for instance, who like catches people doing like something that they shouldn't be doing or whatever. And then they're like, well, what were you talking about? Or what were you doing? And then they're just silent. And it's kind of as if they just know it's not an honorable discussion topic. Like, oh, who's going to be the goat? Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus is like, well, the goat, which by the way, if we're talking about basketball, it's LeBron, but the goat is the one who serves and who's the servant for all people. And so I just think it's funny. They know that this isn't a top a topic that they should be discussing or it's not something they should be doing. And it's kind of just like they're caught in the act. Yeah, for sure. Like de definitely con the act. They've seen all these miracles. They, they know that even if Jesus doesn't, you know, physically hear them, he knows what they're talking about. And, um, they, they're, they're playing this game of like, you know, who's, who's better, who's worse, whatever. And, and definitely get called out. Um, and then in the last part of the section, uh, you know, we again see, uh, the importance of Jesus, uh, towards young children. Um, we just saw him heal uh, a boy who had an unclean spirit here. He's, he's describing to the disciples, um, how important it is and um, how critical it is, um, his importance uh, towards how he feels towards children and says, you know, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. Um, we again get to see, you know, that uh, great relationship and how, you know, we too are, are God's children and, and how his love for us is in the same way. 
Um, and then we move on to the next section um, where we get to see um, Jesus. Uh, they're talking about um, someone who is going around and, and doing things in, in Jesus' name. Disciples are a little worried about this, but, you know, basically Jesus, you know, tells them, like, don't worry. Um, anyone who's, who's not against us is for us. Um, so do you have any, do you have any thoughts on this section before we move on? Yeah, I think this is a super interesting section. So I think that just what is important here is that making Jesus's name known is of the highest value to Jesus when he's speaking here. And so my speculation or conjecture is that the world hates Jesus. Like that's why Jesus said the world is at enmity or that James talks about how like friendship with the world is enmity with God because the world is opposed to the kingdom. That's why like the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and to the the Jews alike in First Corinthians 1. And so the, if the way of Jesus is contradictory to the world, then to be truly friendly to somebody who's following Jesus radically, or in light of this podcast, radically normal, uh, it, it doesn't fit the paradigm of, of what makes sense about uh, the truth of the gospel. And so this kind of reminds me actually of when Kanye uh, released his, his Jesus is King album. Uh, thanks for the weird look, by the way, that everybody else can't see. But this reminds me of when Kanye first releases Jesus is King album because some people pointed out were like, "Yeah, we we uh, like, is he really a Christian though? Like, we don't know. Is he just doing it for the money?" But then other people pointed out rightfully that like you see in Philippians one, Paul's joy about the the faith of the the uh, people in Philippi. And so the point is that yes, we pray he's truly saved, and like from what I've heard, I do think he he is saved. But also, it's still get the another bonus of that is it's still getting Jesus as King on like the iTunes charts. Like somebody who is like in the same sense that like someone who's not against us is for us, like getting Jesus as King on the iTunes charts or whatever, that's helping the kingdom of Christ and the songs are God honoring. And so I don't know, that whole thing kind of reminded me of, of the, that came to mind when I was reading this passage. Yeah. I guess like ultimately like also, um, you know, it's not really our place to, you know, judge or, or figure out like who might be saved or who has the right motives or right intentions or whatever. But when we see someone who's, who's, you know, spreading Jesus' name, um, you know, that is, you know, best case scenario, uh, getting God's word out, like telling others about Jesus. Um, and, you know, we should, we have other things that, that are, are more so important to, to focus on and, and, and put our, um, you know, efforts towards such as like telling others about, uh, Jesus and, and, you know, the good news ourselves. So I think that's important to, to keep in mind as you read this as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it, I think it's interesting though. Like we don't know when these were, uh, we don't, if, if these were, they could have been chronological, but it's interesting to, to think about how, uh, he had just spoken in, in the previous section about, uh, receiving a child. And then now in verse 42, it, he, Jesus begins to speak about the little ones, but I personally think that little ones isn't about children. I just think it's about like little ones in the faith, like potentially like people who are weaker in the faith, who are just growing into the faith, but kind of like mm. a similar theme because, you know, Jesus says we're to uh, receive the kingdom of God like a child, not to be childish, but to be childlike in, in uh, surrendering to the father and clinging to the father in need. And so if you're going to move into the next section in verse 42, we see how it's a grave sin to like cause or lead somebody else into sin. Like we shouldn't be enabling people's sin. We should be enabling them with the gospel. Yeah, for sure, man. And then we see like this whole, like, you know, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And, um, I think this is like definitely like a, a passage, which, which is like disputed a lot of times. Like, is this like 
is this like literally this is what you should do um or is this more of like like an analogy type thing and you know i think definitely like um the latter to be true like i think jesus is, is like specifically here saying like cut out the things in your life which which cause you to sin and you know it's better to just like not have that than than um to like repeatedly keep sinning and that keep you away from heaven yeah i totally agree with the more allegorical interpretation because I think that there, I do think though that like with the allegory, there are like good ways to take it literally. So for instance, if some, if there's a certain like social media app that enables your lust, or if there's a certain, uh, if there's like a certain place you go to that like enables some other sort of sin, then like removing access is like a great way to do that. And so we've talked on here before about like uh, timers on apps or something. So you're not just spending a bunch of your time, like you're not wasting a bunch of time on social media, but also like if a certain app just like causes you to sin, then like removing access is good. Or for instance, JP who works with Nate, who we interviewed b before JP's talked about how, like if, if your iPhone, uh, is just, like, if this things on your phone end up being too tempting for you, then maybe you don't need an iPhone. And he's just talking about like removing access to sin. And I think that that is important because it is serious and shocking language about uh, the path of destruction, what sin can do to you. But I think this passage actually reminds me of Romans 14, where it talks about like, don't, don't enable somebody, even if you have a, a stronger conscience about like, say food or food or, or alcohol or something, which is uh, closer to what Paul's actually talking about in the passage. But he's saying you need to abstain so that you're not causing somebody else to stumble. And so the goal of what Jesus is saying is you don't need to be like enabling somebody else to stumble, whatever that is. So you need, even if it's, even if it's less tempting for you, make sure that you're not doing something that's going to cause somebody else to fall into sin either. Yeah, for sure, man. And then lastly, we see, um, the discussion here on, you know, Jesus calling, calling the disciples and, and, you know, calling all of us to be, to be salt for her, <clears throat> one another and for others. And I think that this is like a really nice, um, closing to, to the, to the chapter where, you know, Jesus, you know, asks them and, and, you know, questions like what happens when salt loses its salt, saltiness? Um, how do you make it salty again? I think that's like something like really important, you know, to consider, like, you know, as, you know, we are called to be salt for others and, um, you know, truly what does happen when, when we like aren't, um, you know, spreading God's word and, and talking to others about his kingdom and, and, and trying to make, you know, um, you know, these taking these steps to, you know, spread God's word and, and, you know, show love and, and, and be salt. Yeah. And it's interesting because spreading God's word is part of like discipleship and, and trials. You know, sometimes you have to go through trials to share the gospel. You think about Paul's missions, but I think there's something underneath the service that Jesus is doing in this passage specifically, which is that salt was a part of every sacrifice that they had to, to give. It was a sign of the covenant and fire. Well, what is fire? Fire purifies. Fire was part of the burnt offerings. The whole animal had to be consumed with the fire when they gave a sacrifice. So he's saying that like to be a disciple, it, to follow Jesus, it must consume your entire life and it must be everything. So to be salt and to think about fire in this purifying sense, it, the gospel needs to be all consuming for us. And so we must be willing to suffer. We must be willing to be disciples if we're going to be salt to the world. And I think that uh, that's a interesting uh, pickup on where he'd been talking about temptation to sin. But what is the disciple? It's somebody who's consumed with Jesus and so they don't sin. Yeah, so I mean, that's all I have about um, this chapter. Um, and if you don't have anything else either, then I hope everyone enjoy the discussion and, and you know, gain something from it. Yeah, for sure. I don't have anything else except that uh, this episode will release before Thanksgiving, but 
that doesn't mean you can't enjoy a nice Christmas movie. So open up Mark 9, read about Jesus' glory, and then watch Christmas Vacation. Thanks for joining us for our 40th episode of Radically Normal. It's been a pleasure so far to serve and to learn uh, and to chat with Andre. And uh, thanks for listening. And we'll be back on Thursday. <laughs>